Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Aaron Falken. On this episode of Why Make, we are talking with the wood-turning luminary David Ellsworth, a resident of Weaverville, North Carolina. And Rob, I believe you met him first when you were at Anderson Ranch. Yeah, it was uh, 2011, and I, I assisted a master class with, with David. I was basically the, the bandsaw and chainsaw guy that got all the stock ready for, for the students to start turning. And uh, it was a pretty cool experience and a really wild one at that. Um, I walked in on the beginning of a class on a Monday morning, and there was everybody laying, out, laying down on the floor meditating. So it was, it was a cool introduction to, to David and the way that he does his work. So here we go, our conversation with David Ellsworth. You know, the way we like to open this up, our, the, the golden why make question is, uh, what's your first memory of actually being a maker, of making something? That's simple. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's my first toy yeah. that I remember. And, and you made that toy. I did. But my, my uh, father, who was an academic librarian, built a cabin in Colorado up in the mountains at 8,500 feet back in 1942. And I was born in 44. And when I'm seven years old, he gave me a stump, a, a pine, ponderosa pine tree stump, uh, about two feet tall, and a can of bent 16 penny nails and a hammer. And why that's significant and why I remember it is that I remember smashing my thumb and learning it several times, but not actually learning how not to cry. Because those were cowboy and Indian days, and cowboys didn't cry. See? <laughs> and then I remember learning the relationship between energy and force when you strike a nail and try and straighten it out, in other words. And then I remember pounding the 16 penny nails down into the end grain of the log and creating patterns on the surface of the log with the heads of the nails. So I'm actually composing, without realizing, of course, I'm composing a mosaic, so to speak, out of the surface of the log. Because you had to get them all the way in, and they're real long when you're seven years old. <laughs> and uh, so that was my first art piece and was also my first toy because I spent a lot of time with that thing. So that would be, that would be the, the first concept of motivation for getting up and going out and doing something. Because I felt it was constructive. I had no idea whether it was art or craft. It didn't make any difference. Wouldn't have at that well, age. Well, I mean, how old uh, you were? I was six. Seven. You were seven. seven. Yeah. Yeah. And and what was its toy aspect then? <clears throat> well, that was basically what I conceived of as a toy. It was some other toys that I had were were uh, later on were uh, uh, swords and knives and and implements of destruction that boys have to grow up with to play. So we had slings and... Playing army or whatever. Playing, no, we didn't play army. We played Cowboy. cowboys and Indians. Ah, oh, okay. yeah, this was the ah. 50s. <laughs> this was post-World War II, if you wish. Um, so at any rate, uh, I considered that my first, my first toy, which in effect, looking back, was the, con the concept of getting up, if you wish, in the morning and going out and doing something, always doing mm -hmm. something. And my father 
cranked the grinder for the coffee and that was, that was our alarm clock and then it was time to get going. So we worked on the cabin, and my older brother and I, and uh, it was just part of the momentum of the family operation, which everybody goes through regardless of what their eventual occupation yeah. or interests are. But that was mine. And uh, it, it just led from one thing to another. But the concept of making, obviously, in its rudimentary form, goes back to food and shelter. And we, we look at and interpret that concept in the way that our experiences gave us as children growing up, and then transform that into and throughout life to as we kind of put the layers upon ourselves for identity as we grow up. And uh, I suppose in some respects as a wood turner, you could say, well, every time I take a cut, I'm cutting off one of those layers <laughs> so that I can get back to that core person, you know, by the time you're old and well, there's crotchety. A, there's a nourishing quality to that. Well, there absolutely. And there's a smell and there's a sound and there's a, a result as well and it's fairly immediate and it's wet because I work with green wood and it's all very refreshing it's, in that respect. It's also reductive I mean in the, in the way you've, you've right. described it as opposed to an, an additive process where you're building upon something you're actually reducing something in layers to get to the, to the core to the essence of it. To the core of the design. Yeah. Exactly. And as you're doing that at least in my experience, we're thinking about, I'm thinking about what the result could be as I'm forming it and wanting to make it better and better each time. And the reason I suggest better is because there's, people are gonna look at this mm -hmm. and they're gonna handle it and they're gonna use it. And if they're not happy with what they're seeing or, or, or using, then you got to go back and, and, and design another one <laughs> that's better than the first one. And I think that that concept of one-upping oneself uh, with each object that you make is part of the stimulus of making. It's the thing that, that, that by the end of the day you can look back with a measure of satisfaction. Uh, you can look back and and... You can put your ego out front, or you can put it in your back pocket, but you can't get rid of it. No. But it sounds you know, like you're, I mean, you're just always constantly challenging yourself. You're to, constantly challenging everything that you do, whether mm -hmm. you realize it consciously or not. And I do. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> actually, Every, we both everybody Although I'm, I'm curious yeah. about what the source of that challenge is, though, because... I mean, personally, I consider the, the challenge is my, my own needs and standards, and maybe this is a pretty selfish perspective, but uh, I don't consider somebody else's interaction with an object I've made isn't as important as my interaction. If my interaction is unsatisfactory, then that provides the information I need for the, for the next iteration or the next object going well. That line could have been better that line could have been smoother. That line could have transferred more energy and information. And okay, but back up a minute, Eric, because sure. you've hit several things here. One is the general personality. 
as to whether or not that personality is motivated or non-motivated to do things, or if you wish, to do work, or to satisfy themselves or other people. And then at some point you come up with something that challenges that, and that would be the reaction of someone to your object. And then you get into uh, the, quote, professional elements of this, this making process, and you realize that it's quite all right if people respond to your objects differently than the way you had intended them to. <laughs> yeah. Because they For do, sure. and you can't prejudge them. What you can do, and at least what I do and learned to do in craft shows when I was selling to the general public, is I was responding to how they were responding and learning from them about my own work. Because they're seeing things in there that I missed or that I interpreted differently. And certainly one of the things that every craftsperson knows is that if you have an, a, a scratch or any, any flaw in that object, they're going to find it immediately. You may not see it, but they're going to find it immediately. And then you go, oh. I didn't see you, that. Or, I didn't see, yeah, right. Or you did and you pushed it aside. Yeah. It's like, um, yeah, or consciously or unconsciously you pushed it aside. And the next time you, you went in and you did a better job of it. But that cycles back to the concept of motivation. And I, I talked to my dad once when he was older and he said, I was highly motivated as a kid. And I looked at myself and I said, I was pretty motivated too when I was a kid. And that could have come from him. And I don't recall any specific, uh, because he was gone a lot, traveling in the library uh, business, if you wish, <laughs> doing lectures and receiving awards and all this stuff. It was great. It was a great time. But we did... We did, and this gets into the motivation of making, I think, we did travel around the country in the family car, the, the station wagon, to go to American Library Association meetings every summer. Mm -hmm. And that would be in a different part of the country. So the, by the time I was 12, I'd been in all the original 48 states, even if it was just driving through them. Yeah. But camping and occasionally fishing along the way and enjoying that aspect of life, whereas the rest of it was, until I was 14, was in Iowa City, Iowa, which was about as boring as toast. And <laughs> then the, in the summertime, we would go to the family cabin that he'd built earlier and add, you know, constantly adding on to it. And that rhythm um, of traveling and camping <clears throat> as a family, older brother, only uh, sibling, and uh, was, was part of getting up in the morning, out of the sleeping bag, gathering wood, whatever it took to be part of that family concept. And it was a natural process, as it would be for anyone at a campsite. And then going out to the cabin, and uh, in many respects, as I grew up, uh, we would do the morning stuff, and then the kids would, the, our friends the, in, on the hillside, the neighbors, we would take, all the kids would disappear. We'd go up on the mountain and play. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'd come back at dinner time when the bell would ring at, you know, at the cabin. Or we'd come back for lunch, whatever, on our own, 
on our own time. But that, that activity became self-motivated. So we, we knew where things were on that mountain that we had to see every day. This is when I was a young boy. And uh, if somebody got out of line, then we'd set them up as a target with a sling and see if we could <laughs> knock them down. <laughs> I, was, I was actually in charge of, there were all the, all the, the people on that hill were academics, almost all of them. And they all had two kids every one of them, and we all played together in the summers. And the, my job uh, was to make the weapons for all these kids so that we could have wars and et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> whether it's a pine cone war or, or uh, whatever it might be. And we'd go on hunting parties. Uh, I mean, it was just fabulous. It was really growing up in a natural way in that respect. And then, of course, we'd come back, and by the end of the summer, I'd realized I haven't touched one of the books on my book list. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's uh, actually what we were, we were talking with David Scott yesterday, and, and we were talking about the creative process, and, and we sort of were able to reduce the creative processes anytime you need to do something, and you have an idea in your head, and then you figure out how you need to get there, that's a creative process. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily involve actually making a painting or a work of art. We're it's saying just, it could even be something as simple as like going camping. Exactly. Or going it could to the beach. Be. Yeah, or, and you're really just describing a creative process. Or, or making a tool to make a tool to make an object. Right. <laughs> or coming up with a way to have a pine cone war. Right. I mean, it's the first, right. you know, there's a, so there, I mean, really what you're describing is really the early roots of possibly your creative process. Uh, loosely defined, yes. <laughs> well, we're, we're not going well, so, to pin you down to it. I look at one of my friends, John Shockley, and when we were growing up, he was exactly my age. And he, John was an intellectual, and I didn't understand the difference between us working stiffs and, and a, a true intellectual. And he, he came down to the house, one, the cabin one day, and he said, you know, I... I, I'm not getting any mail here the way I do at home in the mountains because they were from Texas. And his dad had told him to write to the Chamber of Commerce of all these cities around the United States. By the time he was 15, he had the population of all the major cities in the country memorized. Think about that. He had stuff coming in. He had more mail coming in than all the other people on the mailbox wheel put together because he's getting all his information he from He was me. writing everybody. Yeah, yeah. right. He's writing everybody. He's wow. getting huge volumes. That was John. John was good at that stuff. He wasn't terribly good at pinecone fights, but he played along with this. <laughs> anyway, ended up being a poli-sci professor. Well, you were you were the guidance. You were the you were the guiding force in the in the creative play. Possibly. Uh, oh, I, I I think definitely yeah. so. No, I was, I was a teacher along the way, helping people figure out how to do things, uh, how, to, how to not only make things, but how to utilize them in a play concept. And obviously that's a, th a through line to this day, because you've a done a lot of teaching. It's a through line to this day, that's right, that's right. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great gift to be able to teach, because it's a reflection on your knowledge and your ability to listen. 
and figure out other people's knowledge beyond the subject that you're actually working on. So stepping back a little bit in terms of uh, from the pine cone fights, uh, what was, as I mean, a, I know that you teenager, actually, you went yeah. on to get a degree in an undergraduate degree in the arts and a master's degree in, in sculpture yeah. and focusing on, I think, ceramics at some point? Well, or? I did three semesters of ceramics, but by the time I got done with my undergraduate work, I had done, I had cast metal, metal uh, bronze and aluminum. I had uh, worked in clay. I had tried to do a little welding, and then some program blew up, and I couldn't do that anymore. But that's, <laughs> that's the one discipline I would like to have learned. Welding. Is welding, mm -hmm. and never, never really did, never pursued it. But now I've got a Spanish guy living right up the road here who's a blacksmith, and he's going to reteach me how to weld. Right, but which is actually, I mean, we were talking about largely reductive processes where welding is a largely an additive process. That's right. But it's never, never too late to learn how to weld. Well, I think so, too, although you get a little tremor, and it's a little questionable. Yeah, it, could, <laughs> it can make those stacks of dimes look a little bit more interesting. Yeah, yeah right, right. But during the focus of my work and the tail end of my uh, bachelor and all of the master's work was in polyester resin. Oh, and wow. in, okay. In two years of graduate work, I it's cast wild material. <laughs> seven and a half 55 gallon barrels of resin. Oh, God. <laughs> that must have been horrible material. Oh, yeah, I was going to say. Absolutely that horrible. The, the smells must have been. Well, not only that, but at the University of Colorado, the resin room had no ventilation. Oh, oh my God. It was just dreadful stuff. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I did a little work in fiberglass. I built a chair once. That's an equally it. nasty material. So yeah. you're walking in circles all the time. Well, you days. can't get it out of your pores or your skin. Oh, you know, the yeah. odor is just... Anyway. Wow. It all went to the dump anyway, which was therapeutic <laughs> in its own way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we kid the potters about throwing their first pot and then cutting it in half with a wire. Mm -hmm. And I do I do that with wood turning when I'm doing demonstrations. If I've got a bandsaw, uh, we did it down here just last week <laughs> with a group of students. No, that was at Aramont, sorry. Yeah. It was last week I was over there, spent all morning doing a demonstration and took it over to the bandsaw and ripped it up. But to all the oohs and ahs and oh no's, that was where the learning process started for that class, and it usually does. Well, I mean, not only learning technique, but learning how to, to let go as well. That's right. Like, you know. That's right. It's a great lesson, and that, that I learned in a ceramics class. Cut it in half and see how you did. Takes the preciousness out of it. Yep, yeah. <laughs> um, it puts things in perspective. It levels everything out so that instead of having a behaviorist concept of learning where the teacher knows everything and the student's an idiot at the bottom of the class in the first day. It levels things out to an exchange. It's a fair exchange and it's more of a constructivist approach to learning. And that's when things happen. You're giving the students the right to think and be who they are, but you have to figure out who they are, almost like a psychologist in the beginning when mm -hmm. you first gain a session with people. Yeah, And so that's part of the learning process for the teacher. And the old cliche that the teacher ends up learning more than the students does is always true. Uh, but you have to be receptive to 
what the learning process is by learning how to how to listen. Be a sponge. You, you, you're a constant sponge. And now at 75, what I'm having trouble with, and I think the only thing I'm having any real trouble with, recognizable trouble, is remembering names. And they, it's like they come in one end and go out the other, and <laughs> just before, even before I have a chance to do anything about it, because there are tools for learning how to do that. Um, well, that's what uh, marker boards or whiteboards are good for, huh? I, absolutely. <laughs> uh, name tags. Yeah, name yeah. tags. Much yeah. Yeah. So you're pouring resin, and this resin is, you know, it's it's done. Yeah. You, it's cathartic. Um, where did that? Where did the resin? Well, the resin was a good a good learning tool in itself, and it was all sculpture. It was non-utilitarian. Mm -hmm. There was no concept of it ever being utilitarian, and. It was playing with color, um, especially with flexible polyester resin that I got from mm -hmm. Dwayne Valentine out in California. Barrel after barrel of this stuff. Wow. And you could warm it up in a room of 75 degrees or something like that. And you could, I'd make these long ribbons and you could roll them up into a coil and throw them into a car and take it to a museum and put up an installation and take it down and take it to another show somewhere else and make a completely different installation out of it that way. So it was it was transient from the outset. Um, Pretty durable, too. It, well, it was durable except that I was using NASDAR silkscreen inks for color, and when I exposed it to the sun, they bleached out and it Ooh. became clear again. Oh. I really, I really wanted the conclusion of that two-year period to be a picture in the dump of all this stuff that I took out in a truck. But by the time I got it there and then got back to photograph it, it had all turned back to clear. It only took a week. Oh, wow. So it was, it was a little disappointing. But it, it, it gave me a different perspective on coming into the, to the crafts, that's for sure. Um, leaving the fine arts, if you wish, and coming into the crafts. I found the crafts being very receptive, mm -hmm. both in, in people and how their attitudes were. I found much less, fewer politics, if any. Um, I, I found people that were willing to work to build a studio along with plumbing and wiring and everything else that you needed to know to build your own space so that you could work. And that came from Paul Solner at the Anderson Ranch. And because he walked in and started, I mean, the guy was incredible. Uh, started clearing the, the sheep dung out of the, out of the barn and leveling out the surface and wow. pouring concrete. And I'm going, woo. And I was, you know, 30 <laughs> years younger. Yeah. I couldn't keep up with him. I just want to, I just want to step back for 30 seconds. Cause we hit, I think we hit a real minefield when we said the word crafts. And I just wanted to define our terms because uh, well, it means so many different things. So, of course it does. So crafts can mean medium. And I mean, and traditionally crafts meant wood, it meant clay, it meant fiber, but it also meant functional objects as opposed to non-functional objects. That's and I just, correct. I just want to know how you're using the word craft. Well, it's a mixture because having come from the fine arts, you are fundamentally taught, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that craft is utilitarian yeah. and art is not. 
And that's how you distinguish one from the other. That's why when Picasso painted those pots, his galleries wouldn't show him because he'd made the pots. They were craft. And so that line that we created into the fine, it came to us through the fine arts, needed to be tinkered with, in other words. Challenged. Challenged yeah. all the way. And, and the way for me it came about was working with Solner in making art, quote unquote, through a craft medium and never talking about the distinction between the academic interpretation and the craftsperson's interpretation. And then taking this art in one form or another out to the craft shows, because that was the <laughs> only vehicle we had to sell it. Yeah. And we didn't have galleries, that's why you did craft shows, was to get galleries. And now you're back into the marketing concept, and that's fundamentally a t carried down from the from the uh, art market. So all of my life, and everyone that I know of at this level uh, have dealt with the crafts and the arts as a conundrum and developed their own approach to it in relation to how they, the objects that they make and how they distribute those objects. So in conferences, we talk about this all the time, trying to help people understand one of the the, 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 my pet phrase is it's, you know, you can throw a piece of, a, a, a bunch of paint on a wooden bowl, but it doesn't necessarily make it art. It might just make it a pretty good looking bowl, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that would be okay. And we're trying in effect through many uh, methods to, not to neutralize, but to diminish the importance of art versus craft as opposed to an inclusive concept where craft leads to art. Doesn't mean you have to end up making art, but it but it's the foundation of good art is good craft. And when the when the when the uh, when the the council which I was a member of the board once the council say what American the craft American, American craft, craft council, council. Okay. Uh, was very conscious of this and and then all of a sudden uh, the American Craft Museum became the Museum of Art and Design. Design, right. That, really, that was like a huge controversy. It was huge. And I remember we were yakking about this at the ranch, at the Anderson Ranch, and Sam Maloof said, this is bullshit. <laughs> and he, he, he was furious at the council for allowing him to do that. Wow. Well, then the College of Arts and Crafts in Oakland suddenly became the College of the Arts. Right. And the same thing. And, and because of the timing of that, we knew it was political. We knew uh. that the reason for doing that was not to help understand the balance between the two, but to get more people to donate money to those museums and that school because the craft, word craft was no longer attached to it. Right. And that deepened the wound, yeah, you see. Increases instead the of, Instead of being wow. a, an organization that could help soothe and work over and constantly keep the dialogue going, it shut the door on that concept. So that meant to me that it was up to us as teachers and makers to keep the door open in our own domain. Yeah, wow. And that's what I've done all the way along. When I teach a workshop, we, and, and you saw downstairs from the old work that I had up through into the new work that I've got, 
is when I bring students in here who have no art background at all, we don't talk about art and craft. We talk about objects. We talk about texture. We talk about design. We talk about things that they're going to be able to do fairly soon now with this three-day workshop or a seven-day workshop. Uh, and, and it's up to them to put labels on it if they think they need to. But that'll be part of their cultural experience. It doesn't need to be mine. Yeah, and yeah. I don't need to impose that upon them. And actually, that's sort of the interesting part of this lexicon we've developed now. Because, I mean, we call this podcast Why Make. We, we consciously avoid the whole art-craft controversy. Yeah. And we're talking about making. And yeah. making, is a, making is a universal concept. Whether that's it's a, absolutely. Art, or, art or craft or anything in between. Yeah, it's, yeah. All, it's, it's, yeah. All a, it's all a function of making an object, whether it be functional, non-functional, whether it, it... What material doesn't matter. It doesn't it's, matter. And, and this is a relatively new concept. Well, it's a, I'd say it's a relatively new concept. The terminology is relatively new, but I've really gravitated towards it because I, I really hate this, that art-craft distinction. I, I'd, personally, I'd love to blow it up entirely. Except that you can't. There will always be two sides to it. I really and and <laughs> here again, Eric, you're, you, the reason you can't get rid of it is two. One is it's dominated by the academic, and second of all, it's dominated by the, by the buying market. By the money. Yeah. By the money, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and that puts the responsibility on the maker, which we're now ingrating into all of our lectures, is the use of the term maker. Mm -hmm. It's incumbent upon us to figure out a way of bringing people in to understand what we're doing in relation to the price structure that we, that we po impose upon our work in order to get them to understand the difference themselves. It's possible, if not oftentimes probable, that a maker will start making for the market instead of for themselves meaning that they go to a show or they are in a show and they sell a piece and they go back to the studio and make 10 more just like it mm -hmm. because they're insecure about what's gonna, gonna sell. Well, in other words, they're saying, why make if it's not gonna sell? And they put limits on themselves when they go to shows with the concept that if they're making for the market, then it, it has to be uh, something that you can go back and reproduce. Well, that gets, puts them in an awkward position because if they're making for the market and the market changes, what do they have left? You know, where's the core person behind that work yeah. that is allowing it to fluctuate, if you wish, in the marketplace? Um, following trends. Following, well, what sure, I'm popularity and, and, that, and fashion and all these things oh, come well, right. in. Right, <laughs> I mean, although that interestingly, I mean, how does that fit in, you know, with your, we were talking about earlier, where letting the, the market inform your work. Well, you know, we started out there where we were talking about. Um, tell you the trends not to follow. <laughs> well, I mean, so, you know, having been, horrible at marketing my work my entire life, I've always gone by my own internal compass and never really let my clients inform my work. Ultimately, but, I think most people do. Right. And so I think there's, I mean, as in everything in life, there's a real give and take. Yeah. There's a spectrum upon which you interact with your clients, you interact with marketing, and both informs each other. And there's, there's no purism. I mean, ultimately, you know, 
to survive, we have to sell our objects. I mean, that's right. all, I, that's the unfortunate bottom line. I mean, uh, well, it beats going to work. It definitely beats <laughs> going to work. I mean, it was kind of funny, the, you know. The, the, the boss thread runs through it all. We're, it's it's great to be your own boss. Yeah, I yeah, mean, sure. You know, we were reading that article in what the Asheville magazine. Asheville made the Asheville oh. made right that came out. And, you know, Rob and I both hit upon the fact that you made, what, 9,000 of those? Uh, only five. Only 5,000. <laughs> I got the number wrong. So, but, so I, Eric's intuition was to immediately punch the numbers and go, that's $90,000. Yeah. And, and of no, course, no. You, over a five-year period. Right. Oh, over a five-year period. That's right. <laughs> I, I got my butt. Yeah. I and mean, don't forget the discounts that you have to give. So. Oh, that was wholesale it, or retail? That was retail. Oh, okay. So you only made 45. I only made, I only made 45. And then Over the, five the, years. the friend discounts and the trades. And I made that much shooting pool, for Christ's sake. <laughs> but <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's another podcast. That's another. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think we all succumb to what society deals others, to us and the cards, in other words. And we have to learn to play our own game within, the, within that. Because when it goes back to the studio, that's why most Turners work by themselves, unless they're in a, in a production shop. The way, to, so that was see that was the kind of uh, background that wood turning had was production shops all over the country, thousands of them producing architectural objects, spindle work, mm -hmm. and that's why wood turning never went to college. It was thought of as a trade, and an industrial trade at that. The potters and the glassblowers and, and the jewelers, they all went to college and learned all this stuff, you know, constructive criticism and critique and self-critique. ceramics and department and the oh, yeah, universities. Sure. And Wood turning never had that opportunity or never provided that opportunity for itself. So what we did in the very beginning of the, this era, which would have been mid-70s, is we created our own classrooms. And Lacoff started this in Philadelphia. Albert did uh, with his seminars every, you know, two a year for five years. And that brought people together and that created interaction and that created language. And we shared language between the people who were doing production work and the people as an inclusive concept mm -hmm. uh, with the people who were doing one-of-a-kind objects. So instead of of evaluating it as being art or craft, what we did, we threw it all into the same pot. And and it was claw your way out and see what you come up with, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we showed in the same venues. Uh, and we you know, we would we would say as a marketing tool, put your production work over here and your one of a kind pieces over here so that the customer could make up their mind which one is which in their in terminology with their backgrounds as opposed to our backgrounds. And I took that a step farther and I said, get two booths, one for production work and one for one of a kind stuff so that you don't confuse your customers as to what they're actually acquiring. Because if they, if they see, if they want something over there that's one of a kind but they see this stuff that's inexpensive to them, they won't buy anything. Well, that isn't, that's not the reason you're there. You're there as a merchant of your own work. Yeah, you want to sell <laughs> you both gotta, of them high you and You've got to accept that. And once you learn that part of the game, you can plug yourself into it for whatever satisfies you and, and either 
sustain that way of life or change it. And I got to a point in 85 where I needed to change that part of my marketing life in order to be more, uh, uh, much happier at what I was doing. So I got out of the craft shows mm -hmm. because I, they were competitive to the galleries that I wanted to get into. And it took me three or four years to get into the galleries that I wanted to, one on, on South Broadway in Manhattan and Del Mono in Los Angeles and et cetera. Um, and then five, four or five years later, they were all closed. 